sort of on everybody's mind. So I have an appropriate uh, little story to begin with this morning. It comes from Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania. On a night they had a terrible ice storm. The story comes to us from Craig Larson. On this particular night, there was family in Pittsburgh who had a youngster who had been stricken with leukemia and suddenly got very sick in the middle of this storm and the family did not have an automobile. The roads were so bad they, they couldn't get an ambulance or EMTs where they were at. They wouldn't try it. They called their pastor, but his car was in the shop. The pastor called another man in the church who had a vehicle he thought could perhaps make it there. Without any hesitation, he left to go to the family's house. The ice was on the road so bad he couldn't stop at stop signs or stoplights. His brakes were useless. But he was able to arrive with great effort and pick up the youngster and his parents. But not before he had three minor accidents along the way. Simple individual, just somebody like you. Went a little beyond the expected on that stormy night. Deliver this young fellow and his family to the hospital. I wonder would we be willing to bang up our expensive vehicle multiple times? to assist someone in such a circumstance? Would we risk our own health, our own life perhaps, as this man did? Well, John makes it very clear what the answer to those questions should be in verse 7 of chapter 4 of his first epistle. He says, Beloved, let us love one another. Now previously, John has discussed love not once, but twice as we cycle through these same topics again and again in the book of First John. In chapter 2, verses 7 to 11, he discussed love as a proof of our salvation. And he did so under the figure of light and darkness. Remember that? Then in chapter 3, verses 11 to 18, he comes back to brotherly love once again. And in chapter 3, at verse 16, he said this, by this perceive we the love of God, because he laid down his life for us, and we 
ought to lay down our lives for the brethren. In the practical sense, put your own self on the line to help someone in need. But now he comes back again, a third time to this topic. His third cycle of thought. And this time, he begins this third cycle, because he's covered each of those tests twice, he begins this third cycle with love, the social test of our salvation, because it is the one that stands out in his mind. John can't say enough about the need to love one another, be it in desperate circumstances or dire situations, or the run of the mill every day. He can't say enough about our need to love one another. The love assures us of our standing before God like nothing else. But John doesn't just give us assurance, he reminds us of obligation as well. He expands the topic in chapter 4 beginning at verse 7, but at the same time he expands on the topic, he cuts literally to the heart of it as well. And what he says has ramifications that do not end, but yet it begins and ends with a simple understanding. Before he gets to that simple declaration, he reminds us again of the obligation that he wants us so to follow. Brethren, beloved, let us love one another. Now, Our obligation to love is foremost on his mind, but what he does in the verses that follow verse 7 is give us the reasons why love is paramount in his mind. The reasons why we should always, without question, love one another. These reasons are you might say, our motivation or the encouragement and the exhortation that he gives to us to practice love in our daily lives. And he begins these three reasons in verse 7 without any hesitation, using the little preposition here, for. He says, for love is of God And everyone that loveth is born of God and knoweth God. He that loveth not knoweth not God for, and here's the crux of his argument here in verses 7 and 8, God is love. God is the source of love. He says, for love is of God. In other words, it comes literally out of God. He uses the Greek preposition here, which means out of. God is the creator of love, the originator of love, the essence of love. He was love before he created us. God is love. And everyone that loves is born of God. Now, 
You might question that statement because even those that do not profess to know God or be born of God might be able and certainly do love others. But remember, and we have discussed it often here in 1 John, and we have said it often, if you do not understand the impact, the meaning here of the Greek verb tense, which is present tense, in its original and as it's translated, you're going to miss what John says. For present tense in the original language of the Greek means the practice of love over a lifespan. The daily application of love. And when he says he that loves, he means he that just keeps on loving. Now anyone, even those that do not name the name of Christ, love on occasion. but they don't love to the same extent. They don't love to the same magnitude. They don't love in the same faithful way that those that are born of God love. Because those that are born of God come to know God, and God is love. For love is of God, and everyone that loveth is born of God. And of course that references the Spirit of God who entered into our life and gave us new life and changed us from the moment we placed our faith in Jesus Christ. And everyone that loves not only is born of God, but knows God, present tense. We have an intimate, experiential knowledge and relationship with God that goes on and on and on and on. He's not saying we just know something about God. No, we literally know God through our personal experience. He's in our lives. He's in our souls. And that being the case, He then produces within us the capacity to love as we should. For love is of God, and everyone that loveth is born of God and knoweth God. He that loveth not, again, present tense, he that doesn't have this overwhelming desire and this character, this, uh, this habit of life that brings love to the fore and brings it to other people, that person does not know God. He may claim to know God, but if love is lacking, he does not know God, for God is love. I don't even know a way to explain that. God is love in His very character, in His very essence. How do you illustrate that? John says they're profound in such a simple way. It's not just a cliche that we toss around as believers, but it is a reality that impacts every day of our life. Every moment we live, if we know Him, for He is love. It is His very nature. Charles Haddon Spurgeon, the great English preacher many years ago, was riding along in the buggy and he happened to see a weather vane on a farmer's barn which said uh, had the inscription on it, God is love. And he, he turned into the, to the yard and he found the farmer and he says, uh, what do you mean by that? Do you think that God's love is changeable? That it, that it veers about as an arrow that turns in the wind? The farmer said, oh no. I mean that whichever way the wind blows, 
God is still love. And that's about the best we can do to perhaps describe this. But you know, there's always times in life that we question God's love. There are situations and circumstances that come about in our lives that are difficult to endure. And we might question God's love. And, and of course, we, we can say much about that and we can trace uh, cross-references through the New Testament and, and get into a long discussion about that very thing. But I think there is a little poem here that perhaps says it best and says it very much to the point. It's entitled, What God Hath Promised. It's written by Annie Johnson Flint. She says, God hath not promised skies always blue, flower-strewn pathways all our lives through. God hath not promised sun without rain, joy without sorrow, peace without pain. But God hath promised strength for the day, rest for the labor, light for the way, grace for the trials, help from above, unfailing sympathy, and undying love. Very well said. God is loved because He is. We ought to love one another. But there's a second reason here that John gives us as to why we should love one another. And that is this. Not only is God love, but God has loved us. He has loved us. That's a he, he moves from something that always was and always will be to something that has happened in time. Historically, verse 9, in this was manifested. He, he uses a Greek present, uh, or aorist tense here, a tense which means that something happened at one point in time. He's referencing something that, that came about historically. In this was manifested the love of God toward us. What was it that manifested the love of God? What was it that happened that, that calls our attention to the love of God? What was it that came about that demonstrates the love of God? In this was manifested the love of God toward us that God sent His only begotten Son into the world into the world that we might live through Him. His only begotten. The best, perhaps, translation for that word only begotten, translated by those two English words, only begotten, probably the best translation would be unique. He is the unique Son. There is none like Him in many regards. Now, obviously we are to grow to be like Christ, and Christ's likeness is a goal in our life as far as our character is concerned, but yet He is absolutely unique. He is God the Son. Notice it's a capital S here. It's not referencing that He was somehow a step down from God, but He is equal to God. God exists in three persons, God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit. 
one God, one essence, three persons. You say, I don't understand that. Well, join the crowd. And none of us can really fathom that uh, when you really begin to think about it. But he is God the Son, the second person of the Godhead, who was sent into the world that we might have life, that we might live through him. And there was none like him because he being God yet became a man. He is the God-man, fully and completely God the Son, but yet he took on human flesh and also became a man. Uniquely qualified then that he might give his life on the cross of Calvary that we might have life through him. When it speaks of his manifestation, when it speaks about the fact that he was sent for a purpose, it was that cross that he was nailed to. He came that we might have life. Let's continue on into verse 10. Herein is love. Not that we loved God. See, we didn't love God. We didn't seek after God. Not that we loved God, but that He loved us. And the, the verb tense is the same as before, where He spoke of the manifestation. He literally, by His actions, by His determined actions, sent His Son, and He demonstrated the love of God on the cross of Calvary. But that He loved us and sent His Son to be the propitiation for our sins. Now that word propitiation means offering. He was the sacrifice. He was the sacrificial offering. He was the one who received on that cross, in our place, the wrath of God. Saw a bumper sticker this week. I like to read bumper stickers. This bumper sticker said, Jesus was a pacifist. And I said, no, he's not. Jesus is not a pacifist. That's what I, I didn't say to the person because they were in a store somewhere, but uh, probably thought I was nuts if I did. But in my heart and in my mind, I said, no, he's not a pacifist. A pacifist is someone who doesn't believe in settling differences through violence. Jesus settled the difference between us and God through violence. He was nailed to the cross. He died in our place. He was an offering for our sins. Our sins... Put him on that cross along with the love of God. God cannot overlook sin. God is just and holy. He is holy. He cannot condone sin. He cannot overlook sin. He is just. Sin calls for punishment, for judgment, some would say. Oh, if He's such a loving God, if God is love, how could a loving God ever condemn anyone to hell? You've heard someone say that? I know you have. 
How could a loving God ever send anybody to hell? I'll tell you how. He's still a loving God because He experienced hell for us. On the cross of Calvary, in our place, that we would not have to go there. And He offers full and free salvation to this world. And the vast majority of people turn their back on His free offer and walk the other way. He still loves them. But God so loved the world, the whole world, He died for every one of us. He experienced hell on that cross for every one of us. And I don't think we can begin to even understand what it must have been like for Him to go through on that cross. There was something there about separating Him from the Father and that, that literal spiritual death that He endured is far more than we can ever really imagine. It was more than just the physical abuse and physical death. It was spiritual death also. He sent His Son that we might live. And for that to be a possibility, a reality, He had to die. Sin was punished in his own self, in his own body, in his own spirit. Love flows from the cross of Calvary to all who will accept it. And so, we read in verse 11, again, beloved, if God so loved us, we ought also to love one another. John can't say it enough. He can't help but emphasize it here. The Spirit of God brings it to his mind. If Jesus Christ loved us in such a way as he did, and he did, if he shed his blood, if he died in our place, he became the offering for our sins, he was made to be sin for us who knew no sin. That being the case, we ought, as a response, because we know Him also, love others. Love one another. Amy Carmichael was an Irish lady who went to, <clears throat> went to India back at the turn of the century, right around... Uh, 1894, I think it was. And there she spent her missionary life rescuing young girls who were temple slaves and used for all sorts of immorality. Up to 900 children came into her care, boys and girls. She knew much about the love of God and sharing it with others. Amy Carmichael said this about our love for other people. In a little essay or verse entitled, If. She says, if 
I belittle those whom I am called to serve, talk of their weak points in contrast perhaps to what I think are my strong points. If I adopt a superior attitude, forgetting who made thee to differ and what hast thou that thou hast not received, then I know nothing of Calvary love. If I take offense easily, if I am content to continue in cool unfriendliness, though friendship be possible, then I know nothing of Calvary love. If I feel bitterly toward those who condemn me, as it seems to me unjustly, forgetting that if they knew me as I know myself, they would condemn me much more, then I know nothing of Calvary love. Those are general statements, an appropriate one. But I wanted to kind of bring things down to something very simple and practical for us. So I begin to think, well, what, what really is, is it in our life, in our daily routine, it could be described as love. Maybe, what single word could we use to convey the concept of what love is more than anything else? I'm sure that you might even come up with a different one. Maybe a better one. There are lots of words that fit. But there's one I want to emphasize. And it's a word that speaks about relationship. But yet it goes beyond relationship. It's the word time. You know, you love your children when you go off to work because you're providing, you're sacrificing, you're thinking about their college education, food on the table and all that. You could even say, you know, you, you love your children when go shopping and buy their clothes or put gasoline in the tank so you can take them to school. All those things could be wrapped up in the concept of love. But you know a four-year-old doesn't understand any of them. Do you know what they do understand? The time you spend with them. Irreplaceable. In your homes, in your lives, make time to be with your children. It will make all the difference. Take time 
All those things that seem to be so important otherwise are not nearly as important as rolling around on the floor and playing games, swinging in a swing, taking a walk and picking flowers. But you see what we can say about our children, we can say about our marriages too. And what we can say about our marriages, we can say about our extended family, our brothers in Christ. We're all in such a hurry. We have much to do. When you have an opportunity, when you have a minute, focus on that person before you like never before. The time you spend is love. Beloved, let us love one another. A third reason, says John, that we need to love one another, and it's, it's in, in a sense the greatest reason yet, but then in another way of looking at it, it's stepping down. John's drawing a circle here, a circle of love, so to speak. Maybe that's even insignificant to describe it. But look at verse 12. No man hath seen God at any time. Now, he means God in his absolute, essence God as he was in the beginning God as he exists uh, but also it's a reality that you and I have never even seen Jesus Christ and yet God was veiled by his human flesh but we haven't even seen him No man has seen God at any time. <clears throat> if we love one another, God dwelleth in us. Okay, he's using the present tense again. If we are loving the brethren, then God is dwelling and continues to dwell in our soul. We've had that born again experience. If we love one another, God dwelleth in us and... His love is perfected in us. Now the word here is the same, a form of the same word that Jesus spoke on the cross when he finished paying the payment for sin and said, it is finished. He's talking about a completion of something, a fulfillment of something. Uh, surely there could be no greater expression of love than Jesus died for us. And we've talked about that. But yet that love hasn't had its fulfillment, its end result, as God intends for it to do, until it becomes a part of your life, 
It changes your life. And you have so experienced the love of God that then you demonstrate it before others. Share it with others. And love one another. Now just stop and think about that for a minute. God loves people through us. If there are people that are not being loved, it's our fault. We need to open up the floodgates of our love and not keep them shut or constricted. When people experience real, sacrificial, divine love through us, they know something about God. They see His love. And the only way they can see it. That man who drove that vehicle on that night in Pittsburgh slid through a light on the way to the hospital, came to a stop and sat there for a minute not knowing whether to try to make it up the hill in front of him or take a right-hand turn in a longer route to the hospital. In that moment, he looked to his right, the mother sitting there holding that youngster who was looking at him, staring at him intently, wanting to comfort the young lad. He reached over and patted him on the head, to which the little boy replied, Mister, are you Jesus? You might smile at such a question. But the reality of what that youngster was experiencing was Jesus. The fulfillment of God's love. God is love. God has loved us. We are the fulfillment of His love. The completion of it. Brethren, beloved, let us love one another. Love one another. Uh, some will claim you're a hypocrite because of the times you failed to love. Love anyway. Remember, our love doesn't have to be perfect, only improving, growing. We'll never truly approximate the God who is in love in this life. We will fall far short. But let us dedicate ourselves, remind ourselves, let us determine to love one another. 